Good morning, church. Please be seated. My goodness. Hello to everybody in the cheap seats back there. I guess there's free popcorn for you. We don't do popcorn here. Okay, not yet. Okay, all right. But it is a delight to be back at home here in Chantilly. Turning your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, we'll eventually get there, the 10th chapter. But as is tradition, the first Sunday of each January, the beginning of the year, Bishop Brett and the leadership here allows me the privilege of coming and speaking that which I sense God speaking to the church for the coming year. We believe God is still talking to men and women. Aren't you glad God is still speaking to us? He's given us a manual, a handbook. Every word is in it is, is great. It's true. If it says genuine leather, it means a cow died for your Bible. All right. We believe it's all true. But we also believe that God is continuing to bring contemporary instruction to us, contemporary revelation to us through men and women. We call that the prophetic. And we believe that God is speaking something to the church that if we will have ears to hear, God will give us, if you wish, the specific turn-by-turn directions of how to navigate this next season. Last year, I spoke a message entitled Survival or Revival, that there was going to be very little in between these two realities. I don't know about you, but 2023 was an awful year for me. How about that for a testimony? It was awful. In the midst of revival, God was doing an amazing thing. And yet, I don't know about you, but sometimes I wondered, God, where are you in all of this? How is, how is this converging? And yet the testimonies, I spoke this message in January and then in February, there was this amazing outpouring of God at Asbury College. Very, very similar to the one that happened in 1970. And then we find that it began to move from campus to campus and location to location. Some of you may have seen the pictures of these hundreds of students at night, waiting to be baptized at Auburn University. Folks had literally pulled their cars up and shown their headlights on this, on this pond, this lake where these students could be baptized. In speaking with our campus director in Europe, Aoife Keegan, who my wife and I have the privilege of, of sort of being uh, spiritual parents to, she said, never have I seen so many disciples coming to God. We live in a historic hour and God has chosen you and me and this generation not just to be observers, but to be participants of this revival. Hear me. But in these messages, I gave an admonition from God that we needed to be very careful to adjust our expectations as to what this revival might really be and what it might look like. I mean, we're good Americans. We're consumers. 
I mean, it is a, you know, I, we're, we're value-oriented. We want to be sure that, that, that we're getting more out than we put in. That's considered a deal. Come on. And yet, I asked a question a year ago, what if this revival individually, personally, it cost us more than we get in return? Will we still call it God? Will we still label it revival? Amazing. You see, you cannot bring cost-benefit ratio to how it involves our discipleship and acknowledging the lordship of Christ. And yet, a few months ago, the Lord came to me and he said, son, I'm bringing a sword. Now, I want to say of all the things you don't want to hear God say, I mean, come on, we want to hear God talk about more, double portion, blessing, presence, come, woo, come on, get our Pentecost on. That's what we want to hear. Come on, prophet boy, give us a good word. And so then the Holy Spirit comes and said, son, I'm bringing a sword. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. The challenge is we don't have a choice but to speak what God is saying. A few weeks later, October 8th, we had the Hamas massacre leading to the current conflict in that part of the world. We saw as a result of that, we saw an incredible rise of anti-Semitism, not only in the United States, but around the world. And let me say, whatever your views about Israel might be, I got to tell you that both as the church and as a nation, it would be really wise for us to be friends of Israel because God has a particular place in his heart for that people. But we saw that break out in October. And then we saw the leader of the Roman church, the Pope. He came out and he blessed same-gender marriages. Anybody reading the news like I am? And you might say, well, that's the Pope. That's the Catholic Church. That's got nothing to do with me. Oh, yes, it does. Because it's communicating something to God, God's design and God's laws that say that we're now willing to bless as an, as an ecclesia, as the church, that which God doesn't bless. Even in the church, we've seen of late the discovery of certain things that have been hidden in church leadership that has also made the news around the world. And immediately when we hear that word in a spiritual or prophetic context, we ascribe it to judgment. But the sword of the Lord is much more inclusive and nuanced than simply judgment. Now, let me hasten to say that there is a sort of judgment coming. And we know that judgment begins, anybody know their Bible? It begins right here in the household of faith. We know in Scripture, though, that there are at least seven swords that we see in the Bible. The first one that we see 
when Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden, it says that God placed a flaming sword stationed guarding the tree of life. And the last one that we see recorded was in the book, is in the book of Revelation as it says the sword proceeding from the mouth of God himself. And yes, there is indeed many nuances of when we hear that word sword, it doesn't always mean judgment. But then for me, I, I, I was having to navigate, if you wish, the confusion, the dissonance of revival and a sword happening concurrently. I thought, how do these two things converge? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Hence, the, the name of this message today is the sword in revival. God took me to Scripture. The recordation of the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first revival, if you wish. The book of Acts. Signs, wonders, miracles, salvation. The sending of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, but all of it against the noise of conflict. And if we can look at the book of Acts, not just as, as, not just as historic, but prophetic, we might begin to understand how these things coexist together. I mean, we find this great sermon that Peter preached. The lame man walking. And what was the first thing that happens? Peter and John are arrested. They're brought before the religious authorities, the Jewish high council. Acts chapter 5. Imprisoned once again, released by an angel. Persecution from within the Jews, the sword coming, Acts chapter 6, as to the, the distribution of food to the, to, the, to, to the Greek widows or to the, uh, to the other, the Hebrew widows, there was this conflict. Somebody's getting more than somebody else. This is where we get deacons from. It arose out of that conflict. The stoning of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, Saul's persecution of the church. And then from Rome, James killed by Herod. And from Acts 22 to the end of the book, we see Paul continually navigating in and out of different authoritative structures until finally getting to Rome to appear before the most powerful leader on the planet. And we find from church history that the church for its first 50, 60, 60 years, there was constant noise, constant conflict that was going on from the Jews, from within the church, from the culture, from Rome, until finally we see Nero finally persecuting the church, the church being scattered, the temple being burned in 70 AD. And yet this is the backdrop of the first revival right here. Might it be some indication, some prophetic template of what we might expect 
as well. Interesting. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, but there's also conflict, a sword coming. And ladies and gentlemen, this gospel, hear me, more than any governmental, more than any philosophical, more than any ideology that man has ever conceived, nothing has proven as divisive as the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most powerful entity that's ever been released on humanity. And yet Jesus himself in his own words says this. Stand to your feet for the reading of the word. Just follow along, I'll read. Matthew, the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 34. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. And anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Lord, bless the reading of your word. You may be seated. So how do we reconcile the red-letter words of Jesus himself juxtaposed against the words of, say, the prophet Isaiah. Handel set these words to music in Messiah. We just came out of Advent where we heard these words preached and quoted more than once. But Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Finish it. Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. My goodness. You see, we have to understand the contrast, the juxtaposition of Jesus reigning over an eternal kingdom, which is one of peace, juxtaposed against all of the kingdoms and governments of this earth, of which there will be no peace. Let me just say that. Every government, every civilization has come to an end. Every one. It may have taken hundreds of years to get to that place. And I hate to be the one to tell you, but at some point, if Jesus tarries, the government of this nation will also come to an end. Because this is what happens with everything that is of human design and origin. And it's only an eternal kingdom where we get the promises of this peace and this lordship. And the sword comes to judge, but it also comes to do four things, which is what we'll talk about this morning. It comes to discern, divide, decide, and deliver. 
It first comes to discern. The Greek word there is diakrino, which means to distinguish between or discriminate between. It divides between light, darkness, truth, lies, sheep, goats, that which is of the kingdom of darkness and that which is of the kingdom of light. It decides, the sword always decides of whom is the strongest. And lastly, it delivers, it cuts ties that have wrongly bound. The first aspect of this sword that we find is that it discerns. Well-known passage of scripture, you know it well, Hebrews chapter 4. It says that the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit. Hang on to that because we're coming back to it. Joints, marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart and nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I mean, we find... There in the book of Acts, many miracles, signs, wonders being done. The formation of this vibrant community, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47, meeting together, praying, sharing among themselves. And then we find this couple coming to church and they are struck dead on the basis of their tithes and offerings. How not to build a church. Get killed during the offering. And you know this, Ananias and Sapphira, they had sold a piece of property. They, they had gotten together and said, listen, we really don't want to do the full 10 on this thing. So let's just come up with this price. We'll tell them this is what we're doing and it'll all be good. It's only one problem. Holy Spirit wasn't happening. And let me say to you, it wasn't so much about the money. I've heard that preach. I don't think that's really accurate. It was the spirit in that moment being poured out with such a purity, a clarity, a power that now this is, and, 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 and when Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Oh my, what was it in your heart whereby which you did such a thing in a moment such as this? And what happened? It says they were buried together. The young deacons are there hauling their bodies out. And, what, and it says great fear seized the whole church. I guess they did. Can you imagine rolling up to church? You got the checkbook? I forgot. Ah! <laughs> but what happened? It says the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And then it says what? More and more went, uh, men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. My goodness. Saints, perhaps one of the greatest challenges in modern Christendom. And even among those who profess intimacy with the Holy Spirit. And they even manifest spiritual gifts. Is a discerning of soul and spirit. In 2005, there was a study done, a survey taken of college students. And 
the researcher developed, if you wish, a theological systematic, a belief system of what most in that generation believed, the creed by which they lived their lives by. And it was moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning that there is a system of right and wrong. We acknowledge that. Therapeutic. It's about how this makes me feel. And then deism. We acknowledge that there is a higher power, a God, if you wish, but we believe that he is removed, detached, and not involved in the day-to-day workings of my life. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And in a therapeutic world, and that, that word simply means make me feel better. It has had profound impact on the church. And rather than the church being in Isaiah 66 place, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? The church has largely become therapeutic centers rather than houses for God. Of how can I take the principles of the kingdom to enhance my life and make my pain go away? Jesus did not come as a divine analgesic for your pain. Is it a benefit? You bet. But it's not primary. It's down on the list. Even to the extent now that we begin to feel bad about ourselves. And we're good Pentecostals. I rebuke that bad feeling. Shundai. I loose that bound and bind that loose in the name of Jesus. And then you got a smack on the end. Here's the problem. A lot of Christians spend a lot of time rebuking the Holy Spirit. Because many times that feel bad is the Holy Spirit pointing to the consequences of your behavior. It's called conviction. And by its very nature, it is intended to be painful. It's like, I, ah, I did it again. Lord, I'm sorry. It's supposed to hurt. And we define love many times even from this holy desk, it's making you feel okay about yourself in spite of what your life and your lifestyle looks like. Whoa. Taking up your cross, dying to self. I'm sorry, I don't find any feel good in those words. Help me. First Corinthians 2 says, we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand what God has freely given us. Paul goes on to write to this church and he talks about we without the spirit, we, we can't do any of these things. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. 
As a matter of fact, he says, spiritual things become foolishness to the man operating without the Spirit of God. And yet the great conundrum in the church is that so many believers today cannot discern between what is the soul and what is the Spirit. What is of human origin? What is of divine origin? Even to the point that there's so much noise and clatter in our own souls, we can barely discern the voice of the Spirit when He talks to us. Our GPSs are turned off because our radios are too loud. Hmm, I better move quick. It's part of the reason why our intercession becomes either arduous or anemic. It's because we're trying to propel our intercession out of our own souls rather than being directed by the Spirit of Christ. Our intercession gets reduced to work in the list. I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. But we already know from Scripture, God knows in advance what you need. You're repeating the news to him. Might our intercession be changed if we were simply to sit down, shut up, and say, God, speak. Your servant is listening. What's on your heart to share with me today? Let me tell you, your intercession will be changed. I invite you to try it next week. Put your list away and just sit before the Lord. Our intercession has become a manifestation of that confusion of soul and spirit. And I won't even talk about the state of contemporary worship in this. Of the tail wagging the dog as to who worship is really for. First Peter 2, 5 and 9 describes a priesthood that is supposed to be the church. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Amazing. But if we look at the origins and the original design for the priesthood, we see it in Leviticus 10. This is God in his ordaining Aaron and Aaron's household, two of his kids. They, 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 they get idiots in the moment and God strikes them dead during the ordination service. But this is what God says. He says, you must distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean, and teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given through Moses. You and I are that priesthood. The church is that priesthood. And yet we find the prophet Ezekiel bringing this correction the priests do violence to my law, profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common. They teach there's no difference between clean and unclean, and they shut their eyes to the keeping of my Sabbaths so that I am profane among them. Saints, listen to me. Our priesthood has been compromised through liberal theology. An inclusive theology. Come as you are and you can stay that way. Wink, wink. You can stay that way. And we have compromised 
And we have a liberal theology, sometimes even under the guise of the Great Commission. We must do or say whatever is necessary to win the lost. Let me tell you, that's a dangerous pragmatism. When we fail to call sin, sin, and sinners, sinners. And sadly, the means justify the ends of numerical growth in converts rather than the manifested discipleship resulting in changed lives. And this convergence, it creates a confusion at best and a demonic convergence at worst. It's why 1 Timothy says that in the latter times that there will be those that abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. There's a demonic division, but there's also a divine distinction. This revival, like all revivals of the past, will have a counterfeit. I mean, you know that the enemy doesn't create anything. All he does is steal and counterfeit that which God has done. And there will be a counterfeit to this one. Now, what's going to be interesting is that both will have display of power, signs, and wonders. Here's the difference is that this counterfeit revival will have as essential figures of revival human names. It will be localized both in and for the church. But this true revival is going to be for Jew and Gentile, both those in and those out. And Jesus' name will be made name great. It will be his name that will be central. Not, have you heard so-and-so? Have you been to so-and-so's meeting? Have you gone down to Florida? Have you gone up to Toronto? No. It won't be who's preaching what message. It will be Jesus' name will be made great in the authentic version of this revival. In short, who's at the center? God's wanting to see a right priesthood return to the church. But then... Scripture also talks about false prophets, false prophecy. You know, I've been quiet and I've been kind on this, but I'm done. (laughs) Because there's a principle from 1 Corinthians 14 that prophets judge prophecy. And in the absence of anybody doing it, I'm happy to. Let me just tell you, you're going to hear some of the strangest mess under the guise of God told me in the coming months. And some of the same ridiculous things that were uttered in the name of the Lord in 2020 are going to be uttered again in 2024. Listen to me. That is not a political statement. That is a biblical distinction. It is judging rightly. And even as God is less than happy with a compromised priesthood, He's perhaps even less happy with prophets that misrepresent him but not speaking what he is saying. Jeremiah 23, listen to this. This is what God says. Don't listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of God. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you'll have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their own hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. 
But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? And who has listened and heard his words? I didn't send these prophets, yet they have run with their own message. I didn't speak to them, yet they have prophesied. Beware. Discerning. But then there's a dividing. This gospel, as I've mentioned previously, it is the most divisive entity ever released on humanity. You know, we, in, in our Western world, people make a decision to follow Christ. And, you know, I see that hand. I see that head nod. I see that wink. Or maybe some people are bold enough to come to the front. But, you know, around the world, it's a well-known entity that in many places, particularly in Muslim nations, you make a decision to follow Christ. And the realities of Matthew 10 fall on you hard. That your own household has no choice but to turn against you on the basis of the tenets of that religion. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not beating up Muslims here. I'm just saying there's a reality and there is a cost and there is a division that this sword brings. And this division, even within the church, that God is looking for people not to be an improved version through behavior modification, but a distinction of a people that have been radically transformed by the power of this gospel. We look different. We don't just not use the F-bomb anymore or flip people off in traffic or steal paper clips from the office. Thank you for not doing those things. But the world is looking for something beyond behavior modification. They're looking for transformation. They're looking for the change that only the gospel can evoke in the heart of a man or a woman. A division. The sword decides. Ephesians chapter 6, speaking of the weapons of our warfare, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we know that sword is a metaphor, a weapon of our spiritual warfare, but how do we use it? You know, I find so many Christians that somehow they think that Ephesians 6 that they just, it's like some mystical lightsaber. It's like something out of Star Wars with a Bible on it. And they think that this is what spiritual warfare, this is what the sword of the spirit looks like in doing spiritual war. But is it really spiritual warfare or are they simply the residual challenges we are facing as a result of our own decision making or behavior? Oh, the devil's all after me. He's, he's, he's busted up my money. There's a spirit of power. Shoom. Could we talk about the 28 grand you got on Visa? I rebuke thee. <laughs> Go look in the mirror and rebuke away. <laughs> and many times what we call spiritual warfare is simply trying to evoke the tools of spiritual warfare to get our will and whim accomplished. If it's a spiritual warfare, the genesis of that war is the spirit himself. We find a good king, Josiah. 
This is a good one. Eight years old, 16, he begins to walk, you know, in this righteous way, rediscovers the law. This is a great, great king, a righteous king. And yet we find an account over in Kings and in Chronicles that the Pharaoh, the king of, the king of Egypt, is, 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 is kind of going through his land, so to speak. And he tells, he tells Jehoshaphat, excuse me, he tells Josiah, based on the word of the Lord, this isn't your fight. Stay out of it. And yet, Josiah was so engaged that rather than listen to the word of the Lord, yes, through an Egyptian king, it says that he went into battle disguised and he was hit with arrows and he died. This is Josiah. He was picking up a fight that wasn't his to fight. Hmm. It's called a spiritual war for a reason. It's a spiritual war. Peter. Shoom. Never Lord. And he starts doing open air surgery. <laughs> Whacking off ears. Do you realize what a picture that is of Christian nationalism? I'm in big trouble. I'm going to go ahead and go for it this morning. <laughs> you know, Peter was trying to defend God. Think about that for a minute. Trying to defend God. And Jesus finds it, son, don't you know? Legions will show up, baby. And you're one blade and you really think? You have no idea. But you see, Christian nationalism does the same thing. First of all, it cuts off the ears of the people that need to be listening. So that they can't rightly hear what does indeed need to be said. But we're whacking ears off, trying to defend God, trying to defend God's truth. When God doesn't need our defense, he needs our deference to his word. That's what he needs. Let me tell you, God is plenty big enough to defend himself. And at whatever time that some leader, some ideology, some government, God says enough, he'll just suck the air out of their lungs and they'll drop dead. Ooh, that's extreme, Pastor Jim. It's the Bible. <laughs> and we get polarized. Oh, this is God's side. No, it's not. It's your preference and prejudice. And you're sprinkling some Bible on it. To legitimize that polarization. Joshua finds himself on the road. Angel shows up, sword drawn. Joshua, the man of war. His first question, are you for us or against us? Whose side you on? Don't you love this response? Neither one. I'm sent from the Lord. Let me tell you. We might want to consider getting on God's side rather than asking God to get on ours. And then lastly, the sword delivers. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I believe this is a moment, this is a season where God is sending a sword to cut loose 
and set free in ways we've never experienced before. Hear me. You know the story of that elephant and they put that young elephant on this short chain and that elephant's life has just lived in a circumference around that spot. And then later in life, they cut that chain, but that elephant doesn't move because he thinks he's still bound. Let me tell you, some of you are the same way. They're changed generationally. They're bonds and bondages. Things in your, own, in your own thinking, in your emotions. Bricks that you've been carrying most of your life. And God says, in this season, I am coming with a sword to cut you loose and cut you free. And hear me this, hear me. Some of you are getting cut loose, even some, some environments that you've been in. Now, don't go out and divorce your husband tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not talking about violating covenant. But some of you, even in the workplace, you're going to find yourself cut loose and set free from some bondages you've even been in regarding your vocation. Some of you health things that have plagued you most of your life, many of them without diagnosis, but with lots of symptoms, God is coming to set you free. I want you to hear this. And there are three keys to this. And I'll close with this. John chapter 8. The truth will set you free. The first key to walking in this deliverance is prevailing truth. That word prevail, it doesn't mean availing truth. In other words, here's an available truth and I'm going to grab it and see if it works. No, no, no. The word prevailing truth means ascendancy through strength or supremacy. Prevailing means it is over and above what the doctor says about your stage four. It is over and above what your accountant says about your finances. It is over and above every other thing that would dictate otherwise in your life. It is prevailing truth. That is the word of God. And then there are two more things. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. You know this. Chained up, I mean chained up bad. And most of us will be complaining about our rights being violated. I'm suing you people. They begin to praise, begin to pray. Guess what happened? Chains came off. But it wasn't just theirs, it says everyone's chains. What would happen if the church just did something as simple as believe the prevailing truth to pray and praise as our chains come off that those that are in proximity to seeing what we were and now what we are, that their chains begin to fall off as well. The thing about this gospel, it was never intended to be what I can get out of it personally. But as we put ourselves in those places and we walk in freedom, not just because of what we get, but because of what someone else will get as a result of our freedom. I've seen parents before as I've ministered. They're not willing to step 
into freedom and deliverance, but they want it for their children. Parents, maybe you feel like too late for me. Do it for your kids. Do it for their kids. Step into this moment and receive everything that God is handing out. The sword in revival. They're not in conflict. They're in convergence. Hear me. And this sword is not one to be feared, but expected. A sword that discerns, divides, and decides and delivers. This coming week, we're going to have a moment to put application to this word. Application. That we embrace the sword to do all of these things in our lives afresh. Pray with me. Lord, as your people, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But Lord, let us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of that word. Lord, let us not just get to the end of the parking lot and be so anticipatory of lunch that we don't have a chance to be reflective and take in that which you are speaking to us from heaven. Let us hear differently. Let us manifest that hearing by responding. Lord, touch this people. Bless this house. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, church.